Hello, everybody. Before I get to this uh, very special episode, a reminder that if you are traveling to a conference and you are presenting your research on a poster, check out featherposter.com. You can get your research poster printed on high-quality canvas. It will look great, and most importantly, it will be super easy to travel with. You can fold it up. It will fit inside of a pocket will fit in your laptop bag, it will fit easily in any bag. You can ditch that tube, travel with ease to your conference, and still have a poster that looks great. Go to featherposter.com, check it out, use the promo code TWOBRAD, T-W-O-B-R-A-D, all one word, at checkout, and you will get $10 off. Featherposter.com, check it out. Now, on to the episode. Hello, Brad fans, and welcome to the show. In this episode, we're going on the road. We're headed to Berlin, because at the beginning of September 2019, I attended the Mind Foundation Insight 2019 conference. This was an international conference all about the science and practice of psychedelic states. So if you've listened to this show for any stretch of time, you know that I've long been interested in these psychedelic substances. We're talking psilocybin, MDMA, or LSD. We've talked a lot on this show about their uses uh, in clinical therapy for treating depression and PTSD. And at this moment in history, there's a real sort of psychedelic renaissance happening. For sure, it's being pushed ahead by uh, clinical research into the effects of these substances on depression and PTSD, but there's also a a growing movement uh, in in broader society, similar to some of the trends we may have seen in the 60s and 70s. We're seeing lots of books being written, news pieces coming out uh, about journalists exploring this, this research and also describing their own experiences. We see in places like Denver, you know, the, the interest in these, in these substances is growing so much that it's challenging prohibition laws. Microdosing is now a trend that uh, you can find all over the internet. So I was really drawn to this conference because it was all about science first. So I showed up in Berlin with a microphone and started interviewing the researchers and clinicians here, trying to get an idea of why they thought the psychedelic movement restarted at this point in time and what is their interest in these compounds why are they so fascinating and what do they have to teach us about depression mental illness or the nature of consciousness itself to start off with i sat down with dr andrea jungeborough co-founder of the mind foundation she's a medical doctor by training and started mind with her husband henrik She's now its board and medical director. And I asked her, why start this foundation in the first place and get involved in psychedelic research? Well, what we've seen in recent years is that despite the fact or the supporting evidence that psychedelics could be usually beneficial for people, the science just doesn't happen, at least not here in Germany. And even though there have been people very much involved, already a hundred years ago, for example, there was masculine research at the University of Heidelberg, and there have been people like Hans-Karl Leuner in Göttingen who did... uh 
LSD research uh, in the 70s and 60s. There's just nothing happening here now. And uh, my husband and I have been involved in psychedelic science from different angles, the harm reduction perspective, but also um, the ritual research and so on and so on for about 10, 15 years. My husband longer than that, 20, 20 years around that. Um, and when we realized it was necessary that because nobody else was going to do something, move along, we decided to found the Mind Foundation in order to create, yeah, a, a group of people or uh, also a base for influence to work uh, on the German scientific and political landscape. With Mind being such a relatively new foundation and the psychedelic renaissance also being somewhat new, I next asked what it was about this moment in history that led to this reawakening in terms of psychedelics. Well, there are two sides to this. One is that general, well, the public in general is getting a bit more open about psychoactives. The role of cannabis in Germany has changed dramatically in the past 10 years. If you had asked somebody if legal medical cannabis would be possible uh, 10 years ago, everybody would have been very, very astonished by the, by the idea per se. And now it's a reality. And I think it has been a door opener for other substances to be discussed without reticence, basically, um, in, in the German public. And now we also have the this, this scientific data, the backup from other people, especially Johns Hopkins, who are already here at the conference representing their work, and others paving the way for us. And uh, they've got the foot in the door, and we will help to push it open. This idea of science leading the way and sort of forcing the door open was one that I encountered a lot throughout the weekend, and it was echoed by Marco Aquil, a PhD student at the Spinoza Center for Neuroimaging in Amsterdam and founder and board member of the Amsterdam Psychedelic Research Association, another nonprofit academic association of university students and researchers dedicated to scientific and medical aspects of psychedelics. A lot has to do, I guess, with I mean the, the psychedelic renaissance. It's hard to, uh, to to pinpoint the reasons why it started. I mean, for me, like personally, I think that has a lot to do with the, uh, a lot of it, the research that came out of very specific groups, like at Imperial College or uh, the Roland de Griffiths group in the U.S. So I think it's a lot of the groundwork that this this group did that that really managed to like make that. Uh, that little like change in the, in the perception of psychedelics in academia that allowed a lot of other people that are in academia or like in clinical sciences to be able to like talk about these topics without with a bit less fear of the stigma. Let's say at least now we have the papers. We have some papers to show uh, that we're not you know coming up with with wild ideas, but there there is you know like pretty good peer-reviewed uh, science on on this. So yeah, I, but how, how did it happen? I mean, it's it's hard because it's a uh, it's a long history, obviously. Like uh, associations like MAPS have existed for like 30 years, and they've been slowly pushing. And I guess it's a snowball kind of thing. At some point, it just yeah. Philip Bromberg, clinical psychologist with a background in addiction work and co-founder of yet another nonprofit, the Swedish Network of Psychedelic Science, had this to add about the psychedelic renaissance. I think I I, I would like to add um, in. That on the on the sort of uh, in the medical sphere we have a, a massive crisis in in psychiatry, uh, where we have a, a a lot of patients that are not getting 
helped by current treatments. And I think that's really pushing things in the, in the medical sphere. The unmet need of the scores of individuals in Western society suffering from depression or PTSD really does seem to be a huge driver behind the psychedelic renaissance. Indeed, psychedelic-insisted therapy was a huge part of this conference as well. I was lucky enough to sit down with Dr. Rosalind Watts between conference sessions. Dr. Watts is a clinical psychologist with the Psychedelic Research Group at Imperial College London. She described to me how during her early years at university, a time when magic mushrooms were legal, she first noticed some things about the social groups who used them. And then she discussed how a personal relationship with a close friend suffering from depression led her to see the therapeutical value of these substances. I noticed that there was a kind of drinking culture amongst my peers at university. There was a heavy drinking culture in the UK. Um, and that some people didn't drink and they were interested in mushrooms instead. And you could see a difference in between, like, you could, there was a distinction between those groups in that I think the, um, the, there was something a lot healthier about the people that would use psychedelics rather than alcohol. Um, so that was my first introduction because I was familiar with it. I actually lived above a shop that sold magic mushrooms. So my flat at university was above a magic mushroom shop. Um, <clears throat> and then after that, I then they were made illegal and I went to train and everything. Didn't think any more about it. And then my best friend had depression and she went to do ayahuasca in Peru. And when she first went, I was very, very concerned about her going. And I said, all the things that people say about psychedelics, you're going to go crazy. It's, you know, it's a really dangerous thing to do. You'll lose your mind and something really bad might happen to you. And I, I made her cry and I cried on the phone saying, don't go. It's a terrible idea. Um, and then she had an amazing experience and she came back and she was completely transformed. And then I decided that I needed to explore it. That exploration included loads of research and reading and getting in touch with other researchers involved in this area. And it ended up with Rosalind as the clinical lead of the Imperial College London Psilocybin for Depression study. More on this later. But first, what is it about these drugs that makes them so useful for therapy? If you've ever had a psychedelic experience or heard stories about a psychedelic experience, you've likely encountered terms like ego dissolution, introspection, connectedness, or heard tales of people viewing themselves from a different perspective, maybe not as an individual, but as part of something larger. According to the therapists and researchers that I've spoken with throughout the weekend, it appears as though the effects of breaking down the concept of the self and deep introspection are some of the things that make these substances beneficial for therapy. To investigate this further, let's first hear an explanation of what is self-representation and the self from Nicole Amada, a PhD student at City University of New York, studying the long-term effects of psychedelic experiences on self-representation and the role of these experiences in shaping developmental trajectories by targeting self-representation. Self-representation.
representation uh, refers to the brain's ability to model the self at both minimal levels and narrative levels. So the minimal level is bodily awareness, right? So it's the map of the body that the brain creates, basically. Um, and the narrative self is the cognitive representation or abstraction of oneself um, as an agent that exists through time and space that has consistency and unity, um, that has an autobiography, specific character traits, and that importantly is acting in the world and interacting with the world. Nicole isn't herself conducting research on how to apply these substances directly to therapy. Rather, she's approaching it from the point of view that these are a window or a microscope into our own subjective consciousness, which to her is also directly related to questions of well-being. But with this in mind, I next asked, what can these substances tell us about the self? That's a big question. Um, I think not only can they give us insight into the structure of conscious experience, meaning the way that the brain in normal waking consciousness uh, models the self and reality in narrative form, um, but also give us insight into specific contents of our own selves that are subjective, that are different between us. So uh, not only insight into sort of the universal structure of consciousness, but but also insight into our own subjective sense of self, um, you know, contents of self that we've either avoided or suppressed or we don't have access to for whatever reason, um, and give us the ability to think about our self-contents uh, in a more objective and unbiased way. Um, normal waking consciousness is characterized by this specific kind of self-referential cognition where we are the subject of our experience, we attach to our experience, we identify, we say this is mine, right? We attach to thoughts and feelings. And what psychedelics do is they, they largely dismantle the self-referential network in the brain. Um, and I'm inferring that what that allows us to do is uh, engage in a more decentered approach to introspection, which is uh, seeing the self as outside of the self or with a, a meta-awareness of self, um, recognizing that yourself is this story um, that you tell yourself and you tell other people. Um, and that's all that it is, really, that, it, that it, it, your awareness and your experience can be more than that or beyond that. Hmm. So this, you know, makes me think of the classic psychedelic thing of like ego dissolution or self dissolution, that kind of thing. So is it maybe kind of like if you break it down and this is probably a clumsy metaphor, but if you if you break it apart into pieces, then you can see how how you've constructed it or you can then look at how you've constructed it and say, hey, maybe this is not what I thought it was. That's essentially in essence what it is. It's this idea that. Every day, we're implicitly and explicitly building the story and that um, we pick up a lot of things that are influencing how we construct that story and that it's not all necessarily in our control and that sometimes that story can get rigid and we can get attached to that story and um, it can become really maladaptive. It can prohibit us from optimally functioning. And what these substances do is they... Um, this isn't, you know, I didn't say this, but I think it was uh, Robin Cara Harris that said they're a window of opportunity, right? So they, you know, create a window for us to instantiate change in this story. 
To me, this has always been one of the really interesting parts of the psychedelic experience. This gaining of a new perspective of yourself or of the world that is unachievable via, quote, normal consciousness. It also gives us a sense that this normal consciousness that we experience is really just something that we've manufactured and, in essence, a hallucination itself. And I can see how this kind of thinking and these kind of perspectives would make sense in a therapeutical setting. However, a topic that's always intrigued me and kind of bothered me about this is what is the nature of this new perspective? Are the insights, feelings, and experiences real? Does that even matter? What does real even mean? Oftentimes, the psychedelic experience and the profound insights they provide are presented as a gateway to the mystical or to a transcendent reality. In many cultures with a long history of psychedelic use, they're billed as a way to commune with entities, guiding spirits, or ancestors. Personally, I think that the mystical view of psychedelics can either increase their popularity, as it does in religious, spiritual, or New Age circles, but it can also have the opposite effect, whereby someone can dismiss the validity of the experience as simply a chemical reaction in the brain. Surely, some are even turned off by the idea that these substances have any value due to the woo-woo nature of some psychedelic movements. I tend to think that this was even part of the reason that the first wave of psychedelic movements in Western culture didn't gain a broader foothold in society. I wanted to explore this topic further and so I arranged a meeting with Dr. Chris Letheby, a philosopher of mind and cognitive science at the University of Western Australia. Chris's interests and research revolve around issues arising from the use of psychedelic drugs in psychiatry and neuroscience, and the talk he gave at the Insight Conference dealt directly with reconciling the nature of these experiences with a naturalistic worldview, that is one that doesn't believe in spirit worlds or other mystical elements, Rather, that the physical world is all there is. Interestingly though, as he explained to me, it was an earlier personal interest in mysticism and Buddhism that led him to research these topics. That was what made it get personal, so without that kind of prior interest in mysticism, um, I still maybe would have done it, but it might have ended up being a slightly more mainstream, insofar as any philosophy of psychedelics topic can be mainstream. It might have been a more straight down the line, well, what can these states of consciousness teach us about the mind? But it quickly developed in a different direction, which has to do with that interest in Buddhism, which is that, you know, I personally subscribe to a philosophical view called naturalism, which just is the view that the natural world is all there is. So there is no transcendent universal consciousness. There is no spirit world. Consciousness is a product of complex brain activity. And from that perspective, when I started looking at the sorts of things that were being described in the literature on psychedelic therapy, I became concerned. And I developed the same concern that Michael Pollan articulated really well a few years later in his New Yorker article, where he said, 
is psychedelic therapy simply foisting a comforting delusion on the sick and dying? And that worry, you know, as someone who had this interest in mysticism and looked at what seemed to be happening in psychedelic therapy, that worry, rather than the kind of theoretical question, what can we learn from this about the mind, ended up becoming the main driving force of my research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it seems to me that, like, looking at the conference program, the conference that we're at here, um, there's two sort of applications of of this sort of work, one being the clinical treating depression, uh, addiction, this kind of thing, and then the other side being, what does it teach us about the mind? Um, but is there a third way that you're looking at with, with mysticism and, you know, what, what do these experiences mean for people? In a sense, I mean, I do think there's a third way. What I'm looking at encompasses both the uh, the sort of paradigms or approaches you mentioned but I would say that the third approach is a sort of transformative application the betterment of well people as Bob Jesse put it so and that seems to operate at least plausibly by the same mechanism as the therapeutic stuff so across a lot of the clinical trials you've got psychometric ratings of mystical type experience predicting lasting benefits and you see the same thing in all the studies with um, healthy volunteers people who are sort of you know interested in the religious applications or personal growth or whatever you see the same kind of robust correlation between mystical type experience specifically and um, lasting uh, uh, lasting psychological benefits. But, you know, there is a bit of a third way structure to what I'm trying to do. But I guess, to, to my mind, if you look at a broad general conception of psychedelics, so what do we think these drugs are? What do we think their most important effects are? I like to say that there are kind of historically two diametrically opposed conceptions, which is, on the one hand, the hallucinogenic or psychotomimetic conception, which sees their essential effects as being cognitive distortion and misrepresentation and that tends to go hand in hand with naturalism or physicalism right so people who are naturalists physicalists tend to be attracted to that view of the drugs and then on the other hand you've got the sort of entheogenic or mystico-mimetic conception of these as drugs that generate the divine within or put people in touch with kind of real objective uh, metaphysical realities cosmic consciousness or whatever and so my third way approach is essentially to try and show that there is an entheogenic conception. There is a version of that entheogenic view that is compatible with naturalism or physicalism. So you can be, even from a naturalist or physicalist standpoint, it's still legitimate and coherent and highly plausible to think that these drugs, when they have clinical and transformative effects, do it by inducing genuine forms of insight, genuine epistemic benefits, even things that can legitimately be describable as spiritual experiences. And so that's the kind of... Um, dichotomy that I'm trying to smash between kind of embracing the idea that uh, there are these metaphysical realities that are accessed in the experience of cosmic consciousness and so on, and on the other hand, rejecting the experiences as entirely kind of distorting and epistemically vacuous. This led me to pose, Chris, a question that often comes up when you're discussing these experiences. By reducing the psychedelic experience scientifically to just chemical reactions in the brain, does that cheapen them? And in that sense too, if they are just chemical reactions in the brain, do they still have value? Sure. So on the first one, there's no denying that 
at least with some of these experiences, it does cheapen them to say that it's just brain activity, right? And so this would be when people have experiences that really do seem to be experiences of a transcendent kind of divine ground to reality, a sort of uh, universal consciousness or ground of all being. If that really is the content of the experience and that's what seems to people to be happening, and I think in some cases it is, then absolutely the sort of view I take of it is, um, from that standpoint, cheapening. It is saying that that actually is not real and that experience did not reveal what you thought it did. Um, however, um, a big part of what I think we find when we look at the literature is it's actually a lot more nuanced than that. So first of all, even when people have these sorts of cosmic consciousness experiences, it's not like the experience always wears its metaphysical interpretation on its sleeve. You know, a lot of the time afterwards people are grappling with, well, what actually was the content? What was it that I seemed to encounter? And then, on the other hand, in a lot of experiences, there just isn't really a cosmic consciousness anywhere in sight. And this is what I think is one of the really interesting things when you look at the recent qualitative studies of psychedelic therapy is you can find people who satisfy all the psychometric criteria for a so-called mystical type experience, but they are not having experiences as of cosmic consciousness or as of the ground of all being. Instead, what they're actually talking about is the dissolution of the ego, so a felt kind of blurring of the boundary between self and world, um, a feeling that their own sense of identity is less fixed and stable than they believed. They're talking about profound experiences of emotional catharsis and acceptance. They're talking about this deep sense of connectedness to themselves, to other people, to the natural world, feelings of kind of profound, deep embodiment, you know, really inhabiting the body um, and living from the inside out. And so one of the results there, I think one of the take-home messages actually for the psychology of religion is that these operational definitions of mystical type experience aren't specific to a metaphysical type experience, if you like. It's just not the case that everyone who satisfies the, those psychometric criteria is having a cosmic consciousness type experience. But on the flip side, the positive message for psychedelic research is, look, if you are sympathetic to physicalism or naturalism, this is some of the stuff that does go on in these profoundly transformative experiences that you have no need to worry about. So people feeling like their own sense of identity is a sort of contingent, constructed, mutable product of brain activity and that they they have this deep connectedness to the natural world. All of this is stuff that is perfectly consistent with naturalism or physicalism. And so that's some of the stuff that I say, you know, can form a naturalistic spirituality. I really like the term naturalistic spirituality. And Chris's reconciling of a naturalist worldview with the profound insight or experiences of a psychedelic trip resonated with me. I mean, it's really how I would describe my own personal views and experiences with psychedelics. Yes, these are drugs that alter consciousness in a somewhat predictable way, meaning we know what brain receptors are being stimulated and how. But the value one can garner from the experience is real. I know for a fact that many of my friends and peers of similar background would agree with this as well. So regardless of whether you believe the experiences to be truly mystical or not, there's no doubt that a big part of the psychedelic movement in society is coming from people who want to explore and partake in these experiences without being what we would consider mentally ill. I asked Chris about his personal thoughts on this and how he views the role of psychedelics in society and culture outside of the clinical setting. 
I guess I'm more interested in um, how do we conceptually integrate it? You know, what's the right way to think of these experiences so that they can find a home in our secular pluralist kind of culture? And I think um, ego dissolution is exactly the place to focus. I think there's good reason to think that it is what's, you know, a big part of what's going on in the therapeutic and the transformative mechanism. And again, it's something that, you know, it's perfectly physicalist. It's perfectly naturalist. There's nothing kind of cosmic or uh, deeply metaphysical but it's still profoundly existential it still gets to this sense that and this is again that this is a sort of sort of buddhist gloss on it the sense that in our day-to-day life each of us harbors on some level an illusion about the kind of thing we are that the brain in order to kind of process its signals more efficiently decides that there is this kind of fixed static enduring substantial entity called me and then each of us goes through our day with this real deep down often kind of it's so ubiquitous it's invisible this sense of being this fixed entity and i think um from a sort of secular naturalistic standpoint this is one way we can look at what psychedelics offer that also does justice to the kind of profundity of these experiences it's sort of they they introduce an element of what is called in philosophy of mind representational opacity so people talk about the transparency of experience the idea that we don't normally recognize our conscious experience as a representation or as a model. It seems to us as though we just encounter the world directly. But when psychedelics start messing with the processes that construct that experience, those transparent models become opaque. We start kind of seeing in this very direct way that what we previously sort of had naively taken to be the world itself is actually this constructed and contingent virtual reality in our heads. Um, It's sort of this model or story that the brain is cooking up. And then the flip side of that insight is the idea that we can tell different stories. There are different ways we can model and understand ourselves and our reality. And there are limits to that. And it's a point that's easy to misinterpret. But I think that basic insight that our kind of everyday experience of self and world is more constructed and contingent and mutable than we ordinarily realize is a key to kind of a conceptual key to actually integrating these experiences into our culture here again is nicole amada with her take on why for lack of a better term healthy people may yearn for these experiences and what value they have for our culture Yeah, I think um, the well and unwell mind is not a black and white thing. And I think that um, I think that a lot of people struggle with meaning. A lot of people struggle with purpose. Um, A lot of people struggle struggle with ascribing meaning and making meaning out of their life. And um, there's a lot of external pressures, especially, you know, with mass media and the everyone wants to be famous era. Um, we we often now, I mean, we we write this story so intentionally to be the most interesting, you know, in the in the room. And I think that um, I think that psychedelics can can help people understand that this story uh, is a construction, and that it can be dismantled, it can be reconfigured, it can be molded, and that you're not held to it, that it's not a rigid thing, um, and that it is what you make it. Um, That being said, I think that healthy people, um, healthy, again, what is that? But okay, well, just people that don't have a diagnosis, that aren't mentally ill, um, healthy people also struggle with meaning a lot. 
this is, you know, one of one of the frameworks that I use is the eudaimonic approach to well-being, which really emphasizes the fulfillment of potential. So self-realization, knowing what your potential is and acting in accordance with that to be able to um, grow psychologically as an individual. And um, a lot of times how we can do that is very unclear. And the answers aren't external, right? So there's all this self-help. There's all these different kinds of ways that we look for the answers about how we can grow. And what psychedelics do is they put a mirror in front of you in, in a lot of ways. And it really, it's kind of cliche, but it really starts with self-confrontation. It really starts with honestly looking at yourself. And I think that's the best medicine you can give someone is, is a really solid, compassionate mirror that tells you, it's okay to look at yourself. So, with all this information now about the psychedelic experience, what it is, how it works, what is the value, let's turn back to Rosalind Watts and her work on depression. Knowing that these substances can generate these feelings of deep introspection and give us the quote, compassionate mirror, as Nicole Almeida put it, how does this look when we try to practically integrate this into a clinical setting for those suffering from mental illness? Again, here's my conversation with Dr. Watts. Where ayahuasca is used, there is a very strong cultural container for that experience. They have lots of rituals, traditions, very clear training for their shamans, and it's all very, um, it's, it's, has a very strong tradition. For the psilocybin model, the way it's used in Western contexts, we don't really have a tradition. There was something developing in the 60s, but it didn't really, it didn't um, come into fruition, really. It was, it was stopped. So <clears throat> we, we don't really have a tradition. So in order to build a container that's strong and robust for people to, to feel safe and secure and to grow in, we need to start thinking about the, the, the container. And so we've developed at Imperial a model um, to help people to do that and to feel that they have a framework. So it's called Accept, Connect, Embody. Um, and really the, the key components of, of the model are, as, as the title says, so the acceptance idea is that um, challenging experiences really to be welcomed rather than run away from. If a, in the psychedelic experience there is painful stuff that comes up, we really encourage people to really explore it. The connection part of it is about uh, connecting to values and just ways we can support people through that process of um, really holding on to what they connect to. It's easy to have these connecting experiences and feel at one with everything and that you understand yourself better, but then you lose it when you go back to normal life. So it's about how to really consolidate that connection and help people make changes. And the embodiment aspect is that psychedelic experience is the, one of the things that makes it most wonderful is that it is an embodied process. It's not, it doesn't happen. You don't think yourself into a psychedelic experience. Your body takes you there and you, you feel emotions come up in your body and you feel healing sometimes in your body. <clears throat> so it's, and we are a very disembodied culture. We're very much stuck in our minds. So it's about helping people get back to somatic awareness. Um, and I think those three pillars are probably, I mean, there's just one model, there'll be lots of others. But for me, from the work I've done in the previous study and the current study, those three themes, acceptance, connection and embodiment, feel to me like they are really important. Um, and even if that's the only framework you have, just to think about those three aspects, then that's better than not having any framework at all, perhaps, for some people. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. So this is really a way of taking all this, you know, we know these substances can be useful, so we're taking it now and we're giving like a practical, translatable, yeah. um, maybe manual or toolkit is sort of the wrong yeah. thing, but for people, for both the patients and the practitioners yes. to guide them through the experience? Absolutely, absolutely. So, yeah, the way... Um, we, we think about it as a map, not a manual. We think about the psychedelic experience as a journey, and this is a bit of a map of the terrain. These are the areas that you might want to go towards rather than anything directive like a manual. And it's going to look very different with every person, and it's very important that it's flexibly held rather than too directive. And in terms of what the therapists do, yes, they... So <clears throat> the analogy we use in the Accept Connecting Body model is that of going diving down underwater and... Um, Look, you're on the seabed and you see lots of spiky oysters and those oysters represent traumas in your life and you open them up and you look through them and then you look for the pearl and the pearl is the meaning and that then you swim up with your pearl and that's about connection to meaning um, and in this, this analogy of the journey the therapists are seen as the oxygen pack on the back of, of the patient the therapists do not direct they don't fix they don't have any answers they are simply there for reassurance and support to enable the person to dive deeper so i think that's an important distinction that um that in traditional therapy the therapists are much more in a way much more central to the therapeutic process but here you take a very much a back seat so the ace framework sits in sits in the mind of the therapist as a, um, as a very, very loose map rather than anything that they're going to stick to very carefully. And from the participant's point of view, we don't give the participants the, the map at all. Um, we, we have incorporated the model into visualisation exercises. And we have a preparation visualisation and an integration visualisation, both using this idea of diving down into the water and coming up again. So we're not giving them anything directive. We're not giving them a map and saying, you should be doing this. We're just helping... We're incorporating the fundamental principles into a visualisation which is about relaxation and building trust. So it's... Um, the, the model is subtle. It's a su very, very subtle um, tool rather than anything that overwhelms the experience. Mm -hmm. And so this is what they mean, like the term psycho-assisted therapy. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So psychedelic-assisted therapy is where you're using psychedelics to assist the therapeutic process. But I would say that in our model, because we don't use that, have that many therapy sessions, it's more like it's um, therapy-assisted psychedelics kind of the emphasis is the other way around that the therapy supports the process it helps them dive deeper helps them hold on to the learning hold on to the pearls from the oyster but it's not um it's all there around the psychedelic experience right now rosalind's research is working only with patients with depression and they don't yet have the hard data however she is optimistic and feels that the benefit of their approach is that it contrasts many forms of therapy, of current therapy, which have proven ineffective, in that their model goes deeper and targets the root cause of pain. I mean, it'll be a while before we have data from the study, but so far, <clears throat> certainly seeing that this approach, this new paradigm, this new way of doing things, is very much the opposite of the old way. So antidepressants and actually a lot of CBT-type therapies a very much surface level, then you don't get to dive down into the root causes of your problems. It's about managing the symptoms. 
And also, they often don't work. They don't work for a lot of people. And the mechanism by which they work, certainly for antidepressants, is often for people a kind of numbing, a numbing of emotional distress. Um, <clears throat> so, and even with CBT, sometimes you're, you're trying to think differently about things so that they're not so distressing. We do the opposite. We go into the pain, more pain, make the pain bigger. We fully, fully, fully welcome that. So it's, it's not about suppression. It's about going in and through pain. And what we do know is we don't know the, the, the scores on people's depression measures yet, and we haven't got the brain scan data, which is our primary outcome, is the brain scan data, how people's brains change before and after. But what we do know is that people love the approach, that people really feel like it's a relief to finally be faced, but, but having the permission to go into those painful things and having the permission to, if they want to cry and scream and shout, to be able to do it, to have the space and to feel the trust with us and to feel that they're not hurried along and um, they're in a beautiful room with beautiful music and their pain is really respected and held. And where in life do you get that? So I feel instinctively like I know that this approach, this model is, is really resonates with people and I hope the data um, will show that it that it's um, that it's effective, but we don't know. We'll have to wait and see for that. Dr. Watts's work is indeed promising, and like she said, it's just one model of how psychedelic-assisted therapy might look. What I have also come to learn is there are multiple ways in which psychedelic research can unfold. I was lucky enough to get a chance to speak with Dr. Kim Kuipers. She's an assistant professor at Maastricht University, and she's leading a team of researchers who are studying the neurobiology underlying the cognitive and emotional states produced by psychedelics and MDMA. As she tells me, placebo-controlled clinical trials are, of course, needed and informative, but there is another data source that she believes should be mined, so-called naturalistic studies. In these studies, researchers actually go themselves to the underground retreats or ceremonies where people are ingesting psychedelic substances, and they gather data directly from the participants about the nature of their experiences. We have, like I said, a long-standing history of doing placebo-controlled studies, but then you are still in your lab um, testing one person at a time. And it, 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 has, it has value because you have everything under control and you really know that what you give to people is, causes your effect. But then you have these naturalistic studies where people take a substance in a social setting and um, it also has effects. But the, the beauty of it is that um, you can learn from that. Uh, I think, and, and we, it will provide very important data, I think um, perhaps we should, and we can do that now, if we have uh, data from the lab showing an effect, and we have data from a naturalistic study showing a larger effect, we know that there is more to it than only the psilocybin. There is more to it than only the psilocybin. When people are at a retreat, you are in a group. You are there for almost, yeah, not always the same reason, but you, you bond, you share an experience, 
And this is very important. This empowers you. This makes you stronger. And I think this will be valuable input for... Um, look, if we're going to do... If psychedelics will enter therapy, it will be high... It will cost a lot if we have to do one-on-one -on -one sessions. And if um, group sessions are more beneficial for the patient and it's more cost-effective, why not? So I really want to take yeah, advantage of the knowledge that is out there in these naturalistic settings. Uh, and like I said, it will give input to controlled studies. We are able to test it are low-cost studies. Placebo-controlled studies cost a lot of money. Naturalistic studies do not cost a lot of money. We get preliminary data, which we can use. I tended to agree with Dr. Kuipers that this approach was valuable. And when I asked her if she was receiving any pushback from her colleagues, I was happy to hear that she said she wasn't. I'm sure that some people who hear that she's attending these ceremonies would think of it or misinterpret it as condoning the underground scene. That's not what's happening, let's be clear. I did ask her though how careful she thinks this larger movement of psychedelics in society or the legalization or decriminalization of certain substances needs to be in order to avoid the public backlash against psychedelics, similar to what was seen in the 60s and 70s. Very careful. No, um, that's something that worries me too. A um, couple of weeks, months ago, there was something in the Dutch uh, newspapers that somebody who went to an ayahuasca retreat died afterwards. And that is what you read in the newspapers. But then uh, they investigated it. And I think he also had uh, Ibogaine. I think it was that drugs, you know, I'm, I'm also creating false news, perhaps, but <laughs> <laughs> there was, more it to was the not, story. there was more to it. Yes. And I also think, well, people can also die after taking uh, MDMA once people can die after taking aspirin once it happens. People will have bad reactions, but indeed it worries me that uh, I, To give you another example, I received a phone call from a trauma patient. She went to an underground therapist. She had a bad experience. And she said, what do I have to do? Do I have to enter your uh, PTSD study? What is your advice? I said, look, I can only say what kind of therapy we will offer. And she did not receive integration and full support. So that is what happening. What is happening? Um, I'm very worried because it are very powerful uh, medicines. I also see uh, people who have done uh, ayahuasca once, twice, who feel very empowered to pass on the experience, who might not have the best skills to pass it on. But I, I see this enthusiasm. I can understand it. But we should... We should have therapists or, that, are, that get a good, uh, um, how do you say it, training. Yes, I'm worried that it will go wrong. And then you have people saying, no, it will not come that far. But we should stay cautious. And then I'm also, look, sometimes people saying, oh, we've been doing this underground work for this long time. Yes, and I'm acknowledging that. I will, I will not promote it. I see there is an unmet need in patients, so they're doing 
good job, but it's a balancing act. It's 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 difficult. They are needed, but it's illegal. So legislation has to change. Mm-hmm. But then again, like I also said, people are so... Um, it's hyping. They are creating a wonder drug. We should... And somebody else said it too. We should tone it down. It will not work for everybody. But we should understand for whom it will work. Um, yeah. That's, and it is still preliminary data, what we are seeing. So we need more data too. So that's really convincing. I had asked Dr. Andrea Jungeberl a similar question when she had said that the science is now there and put a foot in the door and it was up to them now to push it open. But how hard should we be pushing on this door? If you push with a lot of power for anything, you will always it is a backlash. So we have to be careful and we have to be consequent in our arguments. We have to back it up by science. And we can only extend, well, an invitation to the public to learn about these things. And I believe that the larger understanding, the the larger um, perception that there is a mental health crisis, that people suffer from mental illnesses and are not being helped alongside the current paradigms, that that is definitely helping us. But if we push the door too hard, it might be slammed in our face. There has been a backlash uh, in, in the 60s and 70s, and we should be very careful to not make ourselves vulnerable to the same, yeah, popular uh, narratives that basically killed off signs on these substances in the 60s and 70s. Here again is Philip Bromberg from the Swedish Network of Psychedelic Science with his thoughts on why this current movement may be a little more resilient than the ones we've seen in the past. I think there's a I think there's a whole lot more knowledge about these substances out there. When these, um, when uh, when the Western society discovered psychedelics in the 50s and 60s, nobody knew what it was. Nobody knew about the risks, and no nobody knew anything about the like the realistic benefits as well. So they were really um, seen as a, a, a wonder drug that would just cure everything. And now I think we know a lot more about about the risks and about the set and setting. Having said that, I, I think there is a risk of a, of, a, of a backlash, which is why the science is so important. For Marco Aquil, founder of the Amsterdam Psychedelic Research Association, preventing a backlash is all about toning down expectations and managing hype. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a risk also of creating some sort of a hype. So someone, I think, at the presentation will say about creating some kind of uh, unrealistic expectations also in, uh, in people that, that come looking for these treatments, looking for something that is going to like, you know, change their life. And then there is a risk of, uh, of them becoming like disillusioned. So I think we have to try to do a good job at remaining sober, I guess, in, in, in some sense, and of, of you know, maintaining a, a realistic uh, perspective of, on, on psychedelics that is, uh, takes into account both the risks and the benefits, I would say. Mm-hmm. So there are risks for sure in, what is in this, this explosion, but uh, hopefully we manage to minimize them with, uh, if we're careful. I put the same question to Dr. Watts. 
Does she think opening these substances up to broader society is a good idea? And what are the ways in which we can do it safely? Um, I, I'm really looking forward to them being opened up to broader society um, safely. I think they're for sure are safe, safe ways of doing it. We can learn all the lessons from the 60s. We're not going to make those mistakes again, I hope. Um, we'd be crazy to. What about the situation that's happening in the US, where there's a lot of decriminalization happening, legalization happening? Does that uh, scare you? Not at all. I feel really positive about that. I think it's wonderful. I think they have, um, from what I've seen, some really wonderful people in those movements, and they have um, some quite well-developed networks. It feels to me that they're doing it with real integrity and a sense of therapeutic purpose. Um, and of course, there will be some things that happen. Like, you know, of course there will be. Um, I mean, look at alcohol, it's fully legal, and look how many people, are, you know, have terrible accidents and die and everything else from alcohol all the time, and it's still legal. So if we have a few, there will be a few people that perhaps, I don't know, there will be things that happen because it's altering consciousness and it's not going to be able to be fully controlled. And I think we have to be adults about it and, um, and understand that there are the benefit, the potential for benefits, I think, are great. But we have to wait for the science to show us as well. I think in terms of our timing, we have to... We're still at the beginning of the scientific project and that more and more data is coming in all the time and it's massively expanding. But I do think that we should be driven by the data and driven by what science is showing us so that it, it seems to me that these decriminalisation efforts are very well-timed because they seem to be happening just at the right time. Um, as long as they don't move too quickly and too radically and too... Um, as long as they stay behind the science, just behind the science, you know. I mean, the problem with that is that in terms of getting this available for people as a licensed treatment, that could be many, many years. And, of course, you know, the challenges we face at the moment with the collapse of our uh, ecosystems, this is something that potentially could help us. So we, it's a very difficult thing because, on the one hand, I really I want it to come through as quickly as possible to, to support us in this moment where we find ourselves needing to build resilience, needing to um, become more conscious, needing to become more connected to each other, this is a tool that could really help us. Um, and we need it now, but if we get too impatient about it, we could also, the whole thing could be derailed. So, yeah, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about this dilemma of how fast, how slow. I think we just need to do it in a connected way. We just need to do it, we can do it fast, but we need to do it in a way that is um, really in line with our ethics, integrity, safety, trust, and then I think we'll be okay. Finally, let's turn back to Dr. Andrea Jungebro. First, for her thoughts on what might be more dangerous than a public backlash. Well, the danger is there, but I think that here in Germany the bigger danger is underground therapy. We've had networks of underground therapists working with psychedelics forever. It has never ceased to exist. And I'm not saying that they're all charlatans or not doing good work. There are some people out there who are very good therapists taking very good care of their patients, but they're working with uncontrolled substances in mainly uncontrolled conditions. And this causes danger. There are casualties, there are adverse effects, and we should really be, be careful with this. I think the recreational use is a social reality, and people have learned to kind of live with that, and they are not as concerned by it as they used to be. Actually, we have less harmful events in, in the party scene than you used to have due to measures of, of, of safety that are being taken, like drug checking. But I honestly believe that uh, the underground therapy can pose a threat to us. Mm -hmm. 
So then is this sort of a unique uh, opportunity right now with the abundance of research that's starting to happen? Is this sort of a unique opportunity to then you know, balance those two things. You have a lot of recreational use, you have people pushing for legalization, but now you have an opportunity to start to back up some of this with, with data and maybe that will help the political side of opening up research, but then also informing the public as to the harms and benefits of these substances. I think that's very much the case. And I honestly believe that having a clear perspective that is neither biased by over-enthusiasm nor by too much fearfulness of these substances is the way to go. So it seems then that maybe there's a middle ground between, you know, a free-for-all, everyone has a, should be taking these at whatever time they want, and then a strictly medical, only, these are used only in a clinical setting. Um, is that something that you personally think and if so, what would your vision of the future of these integrating into society would be? I think these things have to be gradual processes. And as Thomas Metzinger said yesterday, we have to implement a Bewusstseinskultur, a culture of consciousness to work these tools. If, for example, cars had been invented and nobody had started driving schools, we would see far more accidents these days. So I think uh, to a certain extent normative attempts of, of defining rules, of defining guiding, guidelines and patterns are necessary and we should be proactive with that. Um, if I would be free to envision this, I would like to see first free access for people who really need the treatment. And then I would like to see if that is safely possible, an extension to people who want to self-explore and do this perhaps even uh, as, as prevention methods for their own mental state and health. But we should never forget that those who use it recreationally, offer inner insights, are not in such a deep need as those people are who are severely depressed or suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or other illnesses. And perhaps we, as the general public, actually would have to stand back a bit in order to allow these treatments to be available for those who really need it. So it's a bit like having a group of people who can don't know, if there was one kind of food and one group of people were starving if they didn't get that kind of food, but it was forbidden because everybody was trying to have it all the time to indulge, then perhaps those who are just indulging to take a step back in order to ensure the provisions for those who really needed to survive. Well, that was my time at the Mind Insight 2019 conference. It was a, a really great experience uh, getting to speak with all of these people and I think the take-home messages were that these substances are valuable and it's something that we need to look at in terms of therapies for those with depression, PTSD, other forms of mental illness, but even just maybe for ourselves to get out of ourselves and take a look at the way in which we construct the narratives around our lives. That being said, let's take it with a dose of caution. Uh, I and many other people are excited about this movement. 
but as you've heard at the end of this podcast, uh, maybe we should take it uh, a little slow and avoid some of the pitfalls that uh, over-enthusiastic movements of the past uh, have fallen into. For the last word, I'm going to leave it again with Dr. Andrea Jungerbro when I asked her what her take-home message for people new to this subject or curious about psychedelics and psychedelic experience would be. Well, do your homework. <laughs> do, do the reading, look into the, the, the studies. The numbers are there. There are enough... There's enough evidence to support that this is really worth something, that this is worth supporting, worth pursuing. And I personally believe that we need to come from a very fear-based perspective on psychedelics to an informed, knowledge-based and compassionate perspective that puts people in the middle and not our own fear of things changing that we can't control. Mm -hmm. So caution is maybe the way to go? Caution is always the way to go, but caution and compassion combined could be the best way of handling this. Many thanks to all of the people at the Mind Insight 2019 conference. Uh, thank you to the organizers. Thank you to the folks that were helping to uh, set up the press interviews. Many thanks to Karen Almagor in that respect. Uh, she was great at organizing and scheduling a lot of these interviews. It was great to be able to attend as a member of the press with my humble little podcast. So many, many thanks to the meeting organizers, many thanks to the people who agreed to be interviewed. Uh, I appreciated your insight and to those people who I interviewed and maybe some clips didn't end up in the show. I apologize. Maybe we can do something with those in the future, but Regardless, your insights, the conversations I had with you were incredibly helpful in putting this, this whole episode together. My apologies if I pronounced anybody's name wrong. I tend to do that. But again, thank you to everyone. As always, thank you to The Freak Motif for the use of the music. And thank you to Featherposter.com for the support. Go to Featherposter.com if you're looking for a canvas printed research poster and use the promo code TWOBRAD, T-W-O-B-R-A-D. Give us a follow on Instagram, Twitter, at TWOBRAD for you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, leave us a comment. It all helps. Thank you very much to all of you for listening. And that's it. We will catch you next time. Bye now.